What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How did they make decisions at their companies? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from the examples and go on to build our own successful online businesses. Joining me in this episode are Cameron Yarbrough and Keegan Walden, the founders of Torch. Torch helps leadership teams within companies become better at their jobs through a combination of software and coaching. It's pretty fascinating stuff, and I'm really excited to get into it. So Cameron, Keegan, welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Cameron, as CEO, you've had 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, including creating and selling an e-commerce business. Keegan, you're the COO of Torch, and you have a PhD in clinical psychology, 10 years of experience as a UX designer, and in the past, you've led a research team at a national provider of behavioral health services. So you guys are really the perfect duo to start a company that helps leadership teams grow and become better at their jobs. How did the two of you meet and decide to work on this idea together? Keegan and I met in in a master's program in graduate school for counseling psychology. I actually remember the first time we met. We met in the hallway in between uh, in between class. He was this kind of towering man uh, sitting above me, but he had this very powerful yet warm presence. And I was so I was just immediately drawn to him. I had no idea that ten years later we would be building a company together. But I there was a, a, a chemistry right off the bat. Following that moment, uh, we we took classes together, and then we ended up uh, in a practicum course together where we participated in a communications lab called T-Group, which actually originated at MIT, was popularized at Stanford, and is a format for developing communications and relationship skills for business leaders. And we participated in that group together for a year and a half and got to know each other very well. Yeah, 10 years between when you guys met and today when you're running Torch together as co-founders and you guys are providing services to companies like Reddit and Twitch. Uh, So to start with, let me ask, how does Torch work exactly and what happens when a company decides to sign up for you guys' services? Yeah, okay, great. So when a company starts up with Torch, usually what we're doing is committing to help a certain number of leaders at that company grow. And by virtue of the fact that in the professional world today, you don't have many opportunities to get feedback on where you're strong and where you're not so strong. The first thing where we, that we want to do is give both the client and their coach, who's provided by Torch, as much insight as possible into what their strengths are as a leader and what their challenges are. So the first thing that happens is they go through a complete 360 review. So that looks at their leadership across 11 different domains. Uh, these are things like empathy, mentoring, uh, facilitating groups, being inspirational, and so forth. And for every person who goes through it, they self-assess their leadership. And then everyone that they work closely with also assesses their leadership. So their their peers, their direct reports, their manager. And that generates a tremendous amount of feedback that helps them understand, okay, I'm really good at, I'm really empathic, but I'm actually not so strong in this other area or whatever the case may be. And then the coach will sit down with them. When I say sit down with them, it happens virtually over Zoom. So they'll, they'll meet with them and try to tease out the basic themes that they want to work on in terms of like where they want to go as a leader, what they want to improve upon. And then once those are identified, what we do is we, we create 
learning goals out of the basic goals uh, that, that people want to work on and get better at. And what a learning goal is, is it's one of the domains that we're, we look at in our system, or it could be another domain that, that, that the, the client really wants to look at or that their, their company really wants to look at. And by making it a learning goal, what you do is you're, you're nominating several colleagues that you work with to give you ongoing feedback on your progress on that goal. So if I want to become more empathic, I might say, I want, to, I, want, I want the help of two or three or four of my colleagues that'll give me ongoing feedback and regular feedback on the extent to which I'm starting to, to become more empathic or not become more empathic. And either way, um, I'm getting feedback that helps me grow and develop as a leader. And eventually, all the feedback and all the growth that, that comes out of that feeds into another 360, six or, or 12 months later. And all along, we're capturing data that's really helping clients grow. So this is pretty involved stuff. I mean, you guys are helping people become better at their jobs, yes, but the qualities that you're helping people improve and get better at are also qualities that will translate into their personal lives as well. If I become more empathic, not only will I be a better leader, but I'll probably be a better boyfriend, a better friend, a better you know colleague all throughout my life. It's sort of like yoga, Cortland. People come to yoga in the first place because they want their they want to have bodies that look better. But what you actually get as a result is a more overall physical and emotional and psychological health as a result of the committed practice. And we're doing something very similar with Torch, where the immediate value proposition is increased business performance. But what people actually get is a greater self-awareness and therefore more balanced uh, mental health and well-being. And we've had many clients comment on the fact that the challenges that they face in their work life are really parallel to the challenges they face in their private lives, whether it's, you know, being defensive or lacking confidence or having confidence, but for whatever reason, not, not being able to like inspire or lead their team in the way they want to, or feel disconnected from, from a, a deeper source of meaning in their work, whatever the case may be, there's almost always some overlap in the Venn diagram between personal and professional. So people start companies for a lot of reasons. I think sometimes we see something broken or less than ideal going on in the world and we want to fix it. Sometimes we just want to change our own lives and become financially independent or spend our time doing what we love or not have to work for a boss. What would you say motivates the two of you to be founders? For me, it is an absolute prerequisite that whatever business that I'm creating is in alignment with my personal values. Honestly, I wouldn't have created this company if it if it wasn't very similar to what we're actually doing because I'm not interested in building a business just for the sake of building a business. I'm interested in building a mission, and it just so happens that it has a it has a a very strong uh, potentially successful business model attached to it. So that's what motivates me. What motivates me is is building a a a dual bottom line business. One bottom line being to generate profits for shareholders. The other bottom line being to generate a positive impact for humanity. And for me, you know, I've I, ever since I was m- much, much younger, I've always been really excited and galvanized by working with people one-on-one to help them move in whatever direction they're trying to go. So I did that as a, a, a psychotherapist to individuals to groups, to couples, uh, as an executive coach. 
And if there's like an animated for an animating force within me, it's helping people achieve their potential. As a therapist and as a psychologist working clinically with people in a one-on-one setting, while I really enjoyed that and while it was tremendously meaningful, I always had this, I always felt like I, I could be doing more. I wanted to have more impact. I wanted to have, I wanted to, you know, give this gift that I have to the world in a larger way. And I just, no matter how many clients I saw, I never, fe- I never felt like that was the, the best way to do that. I never felt like I was able to have the impact that I wanted to have. I always felt like I could do more. And so when Cameron and I started talking about how we could do this at scale in a technology business, I, I, I could see immediately that that would be the opportunity to do so. And then the second factor is, you know, it, it, it's kind of paradoxical to, to think that this would be the case, but I had an absence of leaders in my life growing up. I didn't meet my dad till I was 25. I didn't really have mentors when I was early on in my career. I got some later on, but I didn't have them much early on. And I had to do a lot of work to kind of catch up. I had to do a lot of therapy, uh, a lot of individual therapy, a lot of couples therapy. This is me as a client now. I had to sort out a lot of uh, issues and challenges and, and things that I just didn't understand. And so having done that, I thought it prepared me to do this kind of work, having walked that walk in my own life. And so Torch is just an opportunity to do that on a, on, a, on a larger scale, drawing upon everything I learned. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think going through those types of issues and then really being able to experience the solutions to them by seeing a therapist and then doing that work on yourself gives you an appreciation that a lot of other people won't have for how impactful this can be and leads you to start a company like the one that you have. I want to talk about the early days. You just mentioned that you know, the two of you guys got together and started talking about working on a company. What led to that conversation? What did that conversation first look like? After I had uh, my father uh, passed away back when I was running my last company, it was this kind of trigger point in which I had it, it sort of had, it was extremely dif- disruptive experience for me losing my dad. And three months later, my daughter was born. And as I was grappling with that major dilemma of a loss and a birth at the same time, it rattled me so much that it I, I, it forced me to do something very different with my life. So I quit the current company that I was running at the time and decided to go off on my own to become a full-time executive coach, which was really more deeply in, align, in alignment with all of my, all of my, my past, my professional and my personal uh, history. So at that time, I reached back out to my buddy Keegan and I said, hey, I'm doing this really cool thing now and it seems to be working. There seems to be a lot of demand for it and I think you'd be really good at it. Are you interested? And Keegan said, hell yes, I'm interested. Uh, Tell me all about it. And the next thing I knew, we were sending clients back and forth and sort of collaborating as executive coaches. And we, we essentially built a, a consulting firm together. Now that consulting firm started to grow legs. And after, after some period of time, we said, Hey, there's really something we've really got something here. Let's build software. And in order to build software, you have to raise money because it's really hard to do and it's expensive. So that's really the conver- that that's really what led to the founding of Torch. Right. And and I think for me there were there were a couple of experiences I had in my personal life that really sharpened my focus and my resolve. So 
first thing was that my, my father passed away and, uh, he, he, he died in, 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 uh, I believe April of 2017. And like I said uh, earlier, I, I didn't meet him until I was 25. And so I really only had, I had maybe a decade with him until his dementia started to get to, to the point where let's just say I had less of him than I would have liked. And so I was really thankful for that time. But once he, once he passed away, and I think, you know, people who have, who have not experienced a parent die, but then experienced the death of their first parent, there's a way that that, that just hits you and, and helps you understand that like, you're not going to live forever. You, you, you are mortal. And especially, you know, given that my dad died when he was 80 and I was 41 at the time, I'm thinking, okay, you know, there's a decent chance that I have maybe 40 more years in which to do something meaningful with my life. And while I had, had done things that felt really good to me and that were meaningful earlier on, it, it just sharpened my focus and my resolve and made me think like, okay, now is the time. Uh, I really need to, to, to get going, doing what I'm going to do in the most major way that I can. And then the second thing that happened right on the heels of my dad passing away is that I got cancer. So I, I would just first preface this by saying this was not, I basically got the kind of cam- cancer that you most want to get of all cancers across every possible system of your body. So this was not going to be a brush with death. However, and I, you know, I got it treated and, and it was fine, but it, there is a way in which being diagnosed with cancer is jarring and like losing your first parent makes you really think about what you're doing with your time and with your life. And I, you know, I, just came to the conclusion that time is precious and life is precious. And, you know, I, I was just, I was coming out of a PhD program and I was a few years out of a PhD program looking to find something to do that would be a broader impact. Like I said, apart from having a, a private practice and doing the research that I was doing. And so it all just kind of came together very quickly on the heels of those experiences. So you guys are both dealing with these life-changing and potentially traumatic experiences at the same time that you're growing this consultancy and thinking about writing software so you can scale it up and turn it into a bigger and more impactful business. How did you guys strike this balance between wanting to do something that has a positive impact on the world, but also you know, coming up with a viable business model that could reach as many people as possible? Were there any trade-offs that you had to struggle with? Were there any lines that you brushed up against that you refused to cross? Or was it pretty straightforward in, in strategizing how to do this? For me, it actually made me more focused because there's something about losing someone that you love and then gaining a new person that you love within three months that pushed me to this epiphany that I can spend absolutely no time on this planet doing something other than what is my, my, my absolute truest path. What am I here on this planet to do? The, the question I asked myself is, what is the path that's going to allow me to have the greatest possible impact on the people around me, on this planet, and on the business world? And that was the creation of this company. And so for me, the, the loss and the birth were actually greatly, uh, were events that helped me really focus. Yeah, I can imagine. And I think oftentimes there's this dichotomy between starting a company that has a positive impact and starting a company that can grow and be as successful as possible, as fast as possible. Have you guys struggled at all with making that trade-off? 
the trade-offs come a little bit later. They didn't come in the first idea of, of how to structure the company, how to set it up. But I think that the challenges come once you start to grapple with the, the power of the technology you're creating. So, you know, we bend over backwards to create a product that has integrity in terms of, you know, measuring in a valid way the different aspects of leadership that we're looking at in terms of uh, producing insights that are clear and coherent and sensible. And also in terms of like charting the progress of the leaders that we work with in a way that accurately reflects what's happening. Because we understand that if we if we get that wrong or we do a job of that that's good but not great, it can have real repercussions for people's lives. And so we we take that very seriously. And I, I wouldn't say it's a trade-off quite in the way that you you framed it, Cortland, but I think it's it's a responsibility that just increases with the passage of time as the product becomes more complex and as we're working with more and more people. And we just, you know, we we can't think enough about it. Typically, the last thing I think about when I go to bed and the first thing I think about when I wake up. Let's talk about this transition from being a consulting company where the two of you were executive coaches for hire to being more of a product company that can scale and reach a lot more customers. A lot of people have run consultancies and want to figure out a way to make their businesses more scalable but have trouble doing it. What have you guys done to sort of make this transition a success and what were the first steps that you took? Well, in, in order to scale any kind of consultancy, the first thing that you would think about is how to build software that's going to automate systems and services, right? And so that's, that's, how, that's how we approached it. We thought to ourselves, okay, what kind of software that could we build that's going to, in, that's going to amplify and empower the services that we're already rendering? And what kind of software is going to enable this scalability? of the software of the services that we're rendering. So that was really the, 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 what the transition looked like. A, cons- a consultancy is generally made up of people rendering service, right? And you have basic administration and operations that enables that service, but it's generally not happening at, at scale unless you're BCG or, you know, Bain or a, a company, a, a large management consulting company, those companies re- require many decades to build. But if you want to build a consultancy that scales really, really fast at the scale of a venture-backed startup, you've got to build software. So that's, that's what we did. And in fact, the first thing we built was a, a piece of software that would automate the, the recruiting funnel of coaches. So it determines the strength of the applicant based on their ability to detect subtle emotions on human faces that are kind of ambiguous. It looks at their cognitive ability from a few different lenses. It measures their personality. It looks at their past experience. It looks at the strength of their their training in different ways. And so without having to go through any interview at all, it already provides you with quite a bit of data on what it perceives the strength of each applicant to be. And so that makes interviewing and, and onboarding coaches go much faster, right? And we're, as we develop, we're building out different pieces of software that automate different aspects of the business. Looking at coaching now, it's, it's kind of like a cottage industry made up of individual practitioners, each of whom use either no tools or their own kind of 360 or their Myers-Briggs or whatever kind of assessment they're using. And so you know, part of how you scale is just to sell to the organization that employs a lot of people. And then you, you, you can work with a hundred or 200 or 500 or a thousand people at a time instead of one at a time. 
But in order to do that, you've got to renovate that cottage industry. And so what heads of HR don't want is to have to manage 30 different coaches, each of whom are kind of doing different things all over the place, meeting at different cadences. What they do want is to manage one vendor who's taking care of all of that for them, again, as Cameron said, through the use of software. And that's that's essentially uh, how our business works. Yeah, it seems like software is this, this commonality between every part of your business where it's what allows you guys to not only scale up, but also, I think, make a more compelling pitch to these heads of HR that you're selling to. Are either one of you software engineers? And how did you guys go about getting sort of V1 of your application written? Neither of us is an engineer, if you can believe that. However, in the first chapter of my career, before I became a, a psychotherapist and then psychologist, I worked as a UX designer and I worked for big banks and small consultancies and nonprofits and had my own kind of shop. And so I, I understood how to create a product, at least visually, that would be sensible and that people could navigate through without getting terribly confused. And I, I'd worked with engineers for years. I worked with engineers for 10 years every day. And so I, I knew how to manage them and work with them in such a way that, you know, some, something, something coherent and useful would be built. You know, would it have been nice if on some level I was a software engineer? Yeah, I think I could have, I could have contributed to it in a different way that might have been, might have sped things up a little bit. But I had enough facility with this kind of thing to, to know where to start and how to build and who to hire and how to, how to approach the overall process. My response to that would be that I am an entrepreneur and Keegan is a, a data scientist and a UX designer by training. And really what our company consists of, it consists of a business side of the shop and a, a technology side of the shop and a data side, right? So really we had the first two, we had the business experience, we had the data experience and now we needed the we had we needed the software experience. So what did we do? We went out and we hired a CTO. We found the, we went and found the best CTO that we could find that also shared our values, and we hired that person. What did things look like financially in these early days? I mean, you guys, I'm sure, were generating revenue through your consulting and your executive coaching. But you also mentioned that in order to write software, you felt that you needed to raise money. So how much of you guys funding your early business was you guys raising money? And how much was it sort of reinvesting your profits back into the business? When we first started, we were just reinvesting our consulting profits back into the business to build MVP versions of the software. So using very sort of low-tech solutions, you know, like SurveyMonkey, basic HTML tools, we were able to build the MVP versions of what we wanted to do. And once we did that, we then went and we pitched to angels. And that original angel round, it was difficult to raise as raising money always is, but we had at least enough to show these angels and we had enough credibility already in the industry that we're able to raise a few hundred thousand dollars. And then from there, we applied to YC. And YC, Y Combinator is really, really spectacular when it comes to incubating companies at an early stage, helping them kind of think about what their what their first versions of their product are going to be. YC is great at keeping people from making terrible mistakes early on. And they're even better at helping them raise money. 
And the way they do that is by putting them on a stage in front of the most powerful investors in the world to showcase their companies. And that's really how we funded this company. You guys are one of many companies that I've talked to in the podcast who've gone through Y Combinator. And I've also talked to many people who haven't gone through Y Combinator, people who might have mixed feelings about it. One of the most common situations I come across is people who've applied because they wanted the funding, they wanted the validation, they wanted the mentorship, but they ended up getting rejected. And as a result, they feel some sense of bitterness or they feel discouraged about their own idea. How do you think things would have turned out for you guys if you'd never gotten into YC? Would you still be able to build the business that you have? I think we probably could, but it would take longer. You know, the, the YC ecosystem is, is great to be able to sell into, and the network is just useful in a variety of ways. And it, it is kind of a badge of, of legitimacy and credibility that, that is really helpful. But even without that, you know, investors are essentially interested in traction and growth. And if you can show that, you know, and you went to YC, great. If you can show that and you didn't go to YC, that's also great. I think we'd be, you know, it would it would have taken us longer, but we eventually would have gotten there. There are also a lot of people listening in who are staunchly against fundraising. They might understand the benefits that you can grow a lot faster, that you have sort of this extra network and financial support. But at the same time, raising money really ratchets up the expectations of your businesses and raises sort of the minimum bar that you need to hit to be a success. Do you guys ever worry about this? And if so, will there ever come a day where you decide to stop raising money? So I self-funded two of my last businesses. And so the, the benefit of that is maintaining 100% control. And, and, and the, when you don't raise money, you have to optimize for profitability. And there's something very, very powerful about that. It's something very sound about that, right? And so I got to enjoy 100% control of the company, and I was pushed to maintain and create a profitable enterprise, which was very helpful. But what I, what I sacrificed was speed and scale. And so when I created this business, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to see what it was like to build a company that could grow really fast. And so I think that there's also one thing that needs to be acknowledged is that there's a window here. There's a window of opportunity. Coaching is not going to be a field that's dominated by individual practitioners for very long. It just makes too much sense to, to try to do something like what we're doing. And if we were to do that just out of the profits we were able to generate from our consultancy, I think we would have missed that window. We just wouldn't get there fast enough. It would, it would take us a long time to generate enough revenue to hire one engineer, then two, then three, then four. And in that time, you're just not getting up to speed quickly enough and someone else is going to come in and do it. And so I, I think there are probably some businesses, businesses where it makes sense to not raise. Those businesses, I imagine, exist in, in themes between uh, different industries that you wouldn't attract a lot of investment attention and it wouldn't attract a lot of attention from founders and you could probably exist in there and kind of grow more slowly but in any sort of org- in any sort of field or 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 industry that you know there's there's clearly money to be made if you don't rise pretty quickly during that window of opportunity you're just going to miss out so that's pretty fascinating i mean it, essentially what you're saying is that you guys are in somewhat of a winner-take-all market where the first to move, the first to capture the market is going to have a tremendous advantage over somebody who's moving more slowly, somebody who's a late entrant. Why do you think it's the case that no one's really built a business 
like Torch before? Why hasn't someone applied software to executive coaching to scale up to reach many more customers? Well, actually, you know, I don't know that it's a winner-take-all market. I'm not sure that that's true. I, I actually, I suspect that there will be several companies that do well in this space. But in order to be one of those companies, I think you, you still have to grow during this window of opportunity that I was talking about. So, so I'm not sure that that's true. The whole learning and development market is over $100 billion in size. I don't think one company is going to come in and be doing, you know, 30, 40, 50, 80 billion of that a year in revenue. I, I, I think that there are just too many, there are too many different pieces of that of that world that you'd have to capture. So I'm not sure that that it would quite work out that way. To also speak to your question, Cortland, is why haven't other why haven't other people done this? You know, one thing is that is that scaling a services business is actually really hard. What we're trying to do is we are trying to build a SaaS product and we're trying to build a marketplace at the same time. That's a very complex and difficult problem because at the core of our business are going to be hundreds and hundreds of coaches, right? So that's very difficult to do. It's just the, it's just the operational problem of, scaling up a very large marketplace of service providers. I think that's one reason why this industry has been slow to adapt in terms of, of technology. But I also think that the other, the other reason is because it's the executive coaches are oftentimes more kind of, they're, they're the types of people that are more focused on their craft and their science than they are in you know, building technology. And I, so I think that was opportunity for us. I think that we are sort of, even though we're not software engineers, we're technologically oriented people. And so I think we were in a unique position to see an opportunity. Let's talk about growing Torch. I think it's fascinating what you said about the fact that you're trying to scale up what's really a services business. And it's, it's not just pure software. You actually have to bring on additional coaches if you want your business to get bigger. What was growth like in the very early days? What's the story behind how you found your first customer, and what are some of the challenges you faced to start onboarding your first customers? So in the early days, we were selling to our networks. So having worked in, in executive coaching in the Valley for at a, at a high level for some years, Cameron had a, a large roster of clients who we could sell to, and we did. And then eventually, we reached a point after maybe six months or so where that had been exhausted and we really had to figure out like, how are we going to sell to organizations and to enterprises beyond that. And that's, that's when you really start to tra- tackle your go-to-market strategy in terms of, you know, wh- what is the story that's going to be compelling to the heads of HR, to the heads of learning and development, to the individual founders who, who are interested in growing their careers and, and their skills. And, you know, w- we're obviously still in that, right? We haven't completely figured that out, but it, it is, you know we're large enough now that we can we can think about that strategically and and do a b testing and test different messages with different folks and let the let the data guide us and show us the most effective way to do it do you remember exactly how much time passed between when you guys first sat down to write the software that you're selling now and when you got your first paying customer well we had our first paying customer before we had any software because we 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 basically had a large group practice or a large consulting practice made up of high-level exec coaches who, who, again, all use their own tools. So we were already generating income from that. And then we started to build software prior to YC 
So maybe after a month or so, and then from YC onward, we were really focused on the software. And in parallel with that, also growing our coaching course so that we could you know, match every incoming client with someone who was a good fit in terms of their personality, in terms of what they were looking for, and so forth. Where a typical SaaS company will actually spend about 24 months on average before they actually sell their, their product, meaning it takes about 24 months to develop a full-fledged SaaS product before they can go to market. We were able to go to market immediately with our service. And then we just slowly, incrementally built software around our service to amplify it and accelerate the scale of the services. That's really how we built this company. Yeah, that's so advantageous because then you can learn from the experiences that you're having with these actual customers and have that sort of feedback into the decisions you make in terms of what should actually go into your software, what will people find valuable, rather than spending 24 months building something kind of blind and not knowing what people will actually pay for. Exactly, which is which is not the YC way. So from the from the very inception of our thinking about software, everything was run through customers, bounced off customers, came out of an interview with a customer, whole features in our product came out of something someone said offhand, and then we tested it or, or evaluated it in some way. So one thing we just definitely did not want to do, and one pitfall we wanted to avoid, and one of the this is one of the main pitfalls that YC espouses, is don't build something in isolation. And assume it's good because you like it. That will always lead you astray. Everything should essentially be pulled out of you by the customer. What are some other things that you learned from YC or from early mentors, and maybe your earlier experiences as an entrepreneur that sort of steer torch in the right direction early on? Well, you know, uh, founders are optimists. And, and YC would argue, and, and I agree that oftentimes, to a delusional degree, they're optimists. And so they, they do a really good job of deconstructing and breaking down the delusions that founders tend to have because they're so excited about their idea and they're so excited about what they're building. One of the key lessons that I remember is, you know, the difference between YC's definition of product market fit and what you might think product market fit is left to your own devices. And so YC's definition of product market fit is it's, you know, there's so much demand for what you're creating that you just can't, it, it, your your company is breaking and it, it's just ceasing to function because you just cannot keep up with the demand. And I think as as founders, you can be lulled into a false sense of security with regard to product market fit and and think that you've established it because you have some paying customers or you know someone told you that they wanted to buy your product or you showed them a demo and they were excited and it's just important to differentiate between product market fit as a function of your your desire for what you're doing to to be born in a big way and true product market fit which is totally unmistakable a couple of things that i think i really got out of y combinator one is i think that yc does an incredibly good job of shattering any amount of hubris that might exist inside of the founders and they do that by they they do that by presenting case examples of all these startups that have raised tremendous amounts of money and have then failed. So they have cr- incredible case examples of people who got really proud of themselves because they raised a bunch of money from Sequoia or Andreessen or you know this top tier VC or that top tier VC only to go out of business because 
they didn't spend, they didn't listen to their customers or they didn't manage their operating expenses. So that by itself, that lesson by itself is, was worth the 7% that we gave to YC, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of lessons that can be extracted from you guys' own story that might be helpful to listeners who are trying to build their own businesses. So to start with, I want to talk about having a co-founder. Having a co-founder can itself be a double-edged sword. Sometimes it results in a situation where the two of you add up to something greater than some of your parts. Just as often, having a co-founder leads to fighting and disagreements that destroy companies. You guys both have a background in psychology and mindfulness. You guys have known each other for 10 years prior to starting this company. How has that played into your relationships as co-founders? And what can other people do to sort of make sure they choose the right partner to start a business with? Well, I think, you know, you want balance across your team of co-founders, whether it's two or three or four or whatever the case may be. And, you know, in, in our example, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I'm like a deeply skeptical person. My natural skepticism that I was born with was compounded by six years at Northwestern getting a PhD. You get a PhD in, in psychology these days. Essentially, you're being taught how to show that a particular research piece of research in front of you that you're reading is flawed in some way. And so that's helpful as a founder. I can look at the product and say, I don't think this is going to work. That's not going to work. We should probably do this and not that. But that deep sense of skepticism on its own is not a good recipe. I would not make a good single founder. Cameron is an optimist and a visionary. And, and he thinks about you know, where, the, where the company could go if we did this or this or this. And between the, it, it, you know, without me, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, the, the wheels might come off in a different way. But between the two of us, we get optimism and broad-minded visionary thinking, and we also get prudence and restraint and skepticism. And I think for anyone thinking about starting a company, never mind the fact that it's going to be a stress that no single human should have to endure on their own, you want a kind of symmetry in terms of how you're each wired, such that one plus the other plus the third plus the fourth equals a pretty balanced human being that hits all the notes that, that you need to hit in order to just endure the, the, the years you're going to spend working on that company, let alone thrive. I think that there's a really simple framework for this. I, I read this book called The Founder's Dilemma by Noam Wasserman. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. And he did these longitudinal studies on startup founders. And he eventually developed this very simple framework that I've really taken to. And that framework says that successful co-founders typically have symmetrical values and complementary skill sets. So I had this framework in mind when I started thinking about who I would partner with in this venture. And I couldn't think of anyone who fit that framework better than my friend Keegan. Keegan and I share share the same values when it comes to politics when it comes to money, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to uh, the culture that we want to uh, create, to just the, 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 and, and the way that we want to treat other people in the world. And then we, by contrast, we have very complementary skill sets. Keegan is very analytical. He's a very data-driven person. He's very scientific. I on the other hand, I'm more of a visionary thinker. I like to imagine possibility and I'm optimistic, as Keegan said. And so when you put these complementary skills together, you, you amplify or you, know, you broaden the reach that you can achieve as two people as opposed to a singleton founder. 
So that's the I think the best argument for why to why to recruit a co-founder is because startup is really hard and it's really rare that one person has all the skill sets that you need to create a successful startup. So by adding a partner who compliments you, you can you can be in more places at once. And I want to say also that even despite all that symmetry and all that complementarity that Cameron and I both mentioned, you know, we still have plenty of tensions we have to work on. In fact, we go to co-founder therapy. And in that therapy, we talk about the, the ways in which we annoy each other. There are things Cameron does that, that irritate me. There are things that I do, ways that I can be like dismissive or contemptuous that really bother him. And we have a regular forum to work through those things so that they don't accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. Meanwhile, we're not dealing with them. And we found as coaches that those kinds of tensions left unaddressed can really erupt and and tear companies apart. And we have a vocabulary having trained together in psychotherapy school and then also being in co-founder therapy together to really work on the tensions that arise before they become huge and enormous. So we're walking the walk in that sense. And now we're also teaching the people that we work with how to do some of the same things. Do you guys think that co-founder therapy is something that all co-founders should go through or should you wait until things sort of reach a a potential breaking point or you start to see warning signs? So the the conventional wisdom is that couples come into therapy. I'm talking about romantic couples about six years too late. And I've experienced this as a couple therapist in an earlier chapter of my life where they come in and they're, they're so at each other's throats and there's so much hatred and so much resentment. And there's been so there's been infidelity. There's been domestic abuse. There's been all kinds of problems. It's very hard to put that back together. It's possible, but it's very difficult. And so I think the same logic around going to co-founder therapy early and just learning how to argue in co-founder therapy, learning how to not be defensive in co-founder therapy, learning how to own your mistakes and repair in co-founder therapy is really key. And and you want to do that as early as possible. It's like it boggles my mind that people can run companies without doing that ever at any point. It just makes no sense to me. Another thing I think you guys are pretty knowledgeable about at this point is obviously helping people become better leaders. You're working with companies, you're developing software, sort of coach these executives and help them run their companies better. What are some lessons that you've learned from that, that potentially early stage founders, maybe people running one or two person companies can take away and become better at running their own startups? Okay, so so what have we learned? I, I think primarily we've learned that you've got to have a growth mindset. A growth, the concept of a growth mindset coined by Carol Dweck, a Stanford psychologist. It's essentially the belief that you can get better at just about anything with hard work, better strategies, and, and, and importantly, ongoing feedback from others. And so in our work with people, we come across clients that don't quite have a growth mindset. Because they don't have a growth mindset, they tend to lean heavily on the leadership skills that they, they think they're good at or they know they're good at and ignore the things that they think they're really not good at. And so much of our model and and the coaching we do is helping them pivot away from this sense of, well, I'm good at these things, so I'm just going to do all my leadership stuff using these skills, and toward the, I'm not so good at these things, but I bet I can get better at them with some hard work and better skill and, and increased feedback. And once they make that shift from relying on what they know to being willing to face what they don't know, that's when all the growth really opens up and starts happening. And we see it person after person after person. That's what all of our coaches do, each in their own way, enabled by our software, but essentially it's at the heart of what we do. 
self-awareness is is such a key part of what we're doing and such a key part of our mission. So I would expand on that. It really, self-awareness at its core comes from mindfulness meditation. And it's sort of made its way into Silicon Valley as this sort of very popular term, but it has its roots in, uh, in Vipassana meditation. And essentially what it means is, uh, is our ability to pay attention to ourselves, to pay attention to what is happening. And the mission of Torch is essentially that. It's to know yourself so impeccably well that you become a better communicator, that you're able to be less reactive and therefore focus on the things that really matter. And so our software and our coaches are our way of codifying that process. I think another thing that's really fascinating about what you guys are doing and challenging in a way is that uh, you mentioned becoming a better communicator. You mentioned becoming more empathic. You mentioned Vipassana meditation. A lot of the benefits here are intangible and difficult to value. If I run a company and I hire a salesperson and they bring in $200,000 in revenue for the year, then it's easy for me to calculate what they're worth. If my servers are on fire and I can't serve my customers, then bringing somebody in to fix them is kind of a no-brainer. But if I'm running a business that's going more or less okay, and you guys show up telling me, hey, I can improve the quality of the leadership in your company, that might be worth a whole lot, but it's also hard for me to tell exactly how much it's worth. And I imagine that makes it a harder sell for you guys. Has this been a challenge for you at all? And if so, how do you explain to customers who might not be aware of the value of what you're selling? So let's just say that your company is doing really, really well. You know, everything is up to the right. You're, you're growing, you're, you're, you're adding users, the users are, are sticking, they're using the product more. But let's just say you treat your colleagues badly, okay? Let's just say you're in a, a little bit of an aggressive jerk, okay? So the company's doing well, but you're an aggressive jerk. All right, you are going to get that feedback from your colleagues. Your colleagues are going to be willing to find a way to tell you that you need to work on your character. And so essentially what, what our company does is it provides a medium for that kind of feedback. Now, let's say you are someone who's not an aggressive jerk at all. You're actually a really, really, really nice person. You're so nice that you have a hard time giving hard feedback to somebody else. And so your direct reports are always struggling to find out how it is that they can do better. What Torch does is it provides a medium for that feedback so that you get the feedback that tells you, hey, I really I really like my manager, but I really wish she would give me more hard feedback from time to time so that I know how to improve. So to answer your question, even when the company is already excelling, most people can still become better leaders, right? So our company is built around developing an infrastructure to make that possible. That's great. I don't think I'd add anything to that. I'm curious about how your your business model works. Are customers paying you guys a monthly fee for coaching? Is it an upfront payment? Is it contingent on results in any way? So we sell to organizations. And we might sell to that organization to coach five people or 10 people or 100 people or 300 people or 500 people. But because we sell the organization, we can say, look, give us this number of managers. We'll do an exploration period at the beginning where we'll really get to understand your culture and the challenges you face and the strengths that you have. And then we'll transmit all that knowledge we get in the, in the exploration phase 
to our coaches to give them extra context and extra sort of framework to work within in terms of understanding what the organization's mission is and what the organization's objectives are for the coaches uh, and for the coaching. And then each client gets to operate within that so that they can have their goals and, and, and their aims and their objectives for what they want to develop in themselves. And it all kind of fits together seamlessly. So the, the business model is sell larger engagements to organizations, don't put any constraints on how long it should be because we're, we're very comfortable with the quality of what we're offering. And we find that once a company starts working with us, they typically will work with us for a long time, 12, 24 months or beyond. And we're finding, we're refining it as we go, customer by customer. I've been thinking a lot in recent days about how beneficial it is to run a business, kind of like yours, where your average revenue per customer is going to be pretty high. I think lots of people developers especially, want to start businesses with a charge customers something super low, like 5 or $10 per user per month. But I think if you do that, you're making it really hard on yourself because not only do you suddenly have to find many thousands more customers to work with to turn a profit, we also can't really afford to spend very much money acquiring each customer or providing value to each customer because they're worth so little to you. Whereas in your situation, each customer is probably worth so much that you can theoretically spend a lot of money finding the perfect customers and put a lot of effort and resources into providing beneficial services. Has that worked out that way for you guys? It has, actually. It it does cost us quite a bit to acquire a customer, but once we acquire that customer, we can pay we our period of payback is only about two and a half months. So the beauty in that is we can spend money to buy a new user but we pay that money back really, really quickly. That's a huge advantage for a services business. What are some of the ways you guys spend money to acquire new users? We spend a lot of money on high-quality content creation. One of the unique advantages of our business is there's all kinds of very, very interesting content that you can create around leadership. And you know the content is so engaging that we're able to distribute the content to through to our influencers, and they're very happy to redistribute it because it's valuable content to put out in the world. So people read the content, uh, they want to engage with it, and they come to our landing page and they will fill out uh, fill out a form. So that's the kind of basic way that we that we acquire customers. But that process of creating really high value, high quality content cost money. So I'll let you guys get out of here with a final question. You guys have both spent a while working on Torch, a while as executive coaches. Cameron, you've had a pretty long journey as an entrepreneur. What do you think are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as founders that brand new people, people who are considering starting companies, people who just started their companies should take to heart? So I, I think having been an executive coach and seeing people go through pretty much every phase of that, it was remarkable how much I was still surprised by the challenge of the path of leadership now that I'm experiencing it firsthand. I should know better. You know, I've worked with people and seen every, just about every possible challenge that a leader can face. But, you know, if I was to give a piece of advice to anyone thinking about starting a company, it's, you know, get ready. It's not for the faint of heart. It's a, it's a new challenge every day. It's, it's ups, it's downs. You really need to have your life be, well, things, things will go better to the extent that your life is stable and solid and that you have the kind of awareness that you, you need in order to do this effectively. And by that, I mean, you really need to know what your challenges are as a leader. What is it that you don't like to do? What is it that you think you are terrible at? 
how is it that your your fears, your anxiety, your depression, your thoughts about yourself, your your whatever uh, are likely to to show up once the pressure is really on and, and things are growing or not growing. Either way, it's a different challenge and it's a different set of stressors. And the more insight you can you can come into the the, the founder experience with, the better you're going to do, the better co-founder you'll be. And you know, a, a coach can be really helpful in that regard. A therapist can be really helpful in that gar- that regard. It's very difficult to learn all of this on the fly. What I'll say is that something that I've learned from this company is that your strength as a co-founder pair is only as strong as your own ability to reflect on your own weaknesses, your own vulnerabilities, and be okay with those things and talk about them with your co-founder. To the extent that you try to hide them, to try to hide your weaknesses, to the extent that you try to pretend that you've got it all taken care of, that relationship will will suffer uh, or, or even fail. So what I'm learning from my work with Keegan is that in order for us to create a successful co-founder relationship and therefore a successful company, we have to be willing to be wrong. We have to be willing to admit our failures. We have to be willing to admit when we have something to learn and how to ask for help. And those are the kinds of things that I do every single day. And the fact is, is when you have not only a co-founder, but you have an entire organization of people, whether it's 20 people or 50 people or 1,000 people, your weaknesses and vulnerability will be seen because you're on such a stage. So you should not take that position if you aren't willing to look at yourself on a daily basis. That's what I'll say to everyone who's thinking about starting a company. I would just add that it's particularly important for for Cameron to admit that he's wrong because it, it happens so much and it's so rare that the opposite. <laughs> so I'm happy. You can tell from what he's saying that we've had a lot of co-founder therapy and that he's really come to see some of his shortcomings, and that's always good to see. <laughs> well, I'll leave you guys. I'll leave you guys on that note. Cameron, you can jump into the comments on the website to defend yourself. <laughs> hey, the other the other note is is you really need to have a sense of humor because you have to be willing to take um, being teased from your co-founder and make and being made fun of. I think that's actually a really important skill. So Keegan and I are really great at, at giving each other a hard time and being playful. Oh, yeah, uh, I would add uh, add that a great co-founder pairs have to be able to do that really well. I can second that because I work on indie hackers with my twin brother, and we've got thirty-one year history of ragging on each other. So, exactly. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, sharing your story, sharing your tips. It was a really thoughtful and I think helpful episode. Thanks so much for coming on to the show, guys. Can you let listeners know where they can go online to learn more about Torch and about what's going on in your personal lives? If you guys share that kind of information online as well. So if they want to learn more, they should go to our website, which is torch.io. And in terms of our personal lives, you know, when you're running a company, there isn't time for much else. But whatever time we do have certainly goes to our kids and our wives. I've, I've got two kids. Cameron's got two kids. And, uh, you know, they're, they keep us grounded. And, and every, every ounce of energy that I'm not spending running Torch, I'm spending with them. 
And I want to give a special acknowledgement to my wife, whose support really makes all this possible. Be completely impossible to do anything like this, but I didn't have such a rock for a partner, and that's just uh, you know beyond important. I will add that you. It's really important that you that any founder has a really stable relationship with uh, their spouse, uh, because if you don't, it's you, when you create a startup. Any amount of instability that you have at home is only going to be exacerbated. So I feel very grateful to the balanced relationship that I have with my with my wife as well. That's just the foundation of of any successful uh, company is having successful relationships at home. All right, thanks so much, guys, for coming on the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having us. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast. Why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.